world, and welcome back to another episode of the Let's Talk Audio Podcast. Woohoo! So, on today's episode, we have the wonderful Rose Parker. She is a live sound engineer for um, in-store shows that she also records and uploads to the store's YouTube channel. She is a professor at the local SAE Brisbane college and most recently she started teaching herself how to do video game audio so without further ado we're gonna get right on into this episode Let's talk, Let's talk audio. 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 Who are you? What do you do? And what do you do with your life? I'm Rose. Uh, Rose Parker. If you look Rose Parker audio up, that's pretty much my handle on everything. I do sound, as my email says. Rose Parker. I do audio. I kind of do a little bit of everything. I do music production. I do post-production, I do live sound, but specifically games is my big interest, and I teach it and lecture. Awesome. Okay, you're in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. When I was in college, I actually wanted to study abroad, and I wanted to go to Griffith University there. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then I didn't go, but because uh, <laughs> like life likes to like change your plans. Totally. And so I, I kind of thought it was funny that you were like one of the first people who found me on the Instagram and like followed me or whatever back when my podcast was called women in audio. And I was like, Oh my goodness. She's from the place that I always wanted to go visit. <laughs> I mean, it's very pretty. I think that the thing that's blowing my mind at the moment and the fact that like people know about Brisbane, have you watched the kids show or know of the kids show Bluey? I cannot say that I do. Cool. I keep seeing things on like TikTok and other places where it's like, it's, getting in that like popular range where people from all over the world are being like oh this kid's show but it's it's written and animated and created in Brisbane so like all of the animations and all the little streets or parks or anything that they go to in it is like my hometown I'm like I've been to that park I know what that is oh that's fun and so it's really cute seeing, especially like people in the UK and in America being like, Bluey's so cool. Look at this. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's I know that house. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I just Googled this. Yeah. No, this looks super cool. I mean, I probably wouldn't watch it, but you know, my, my sister's kids probably would. <laughs> so I also thought I wouldn't watch it. It's been around for a few years now. I, my partner and I now religiously watch it because it is the most wholesome seven-minute little episode where we go, just want to put something on while we're eating dinner and doing something. And we're like, oh, we'll watch an episode of Bluey. So it's real nice. <laughs> That's so cute. I'll have to check it out. I don't know where I'd watch it, though, out here in the States. That's always the problem, right, with international things. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, where do you watch it in your hometown? I don't freaking know. Yeah. <laughs> But I'll have to look it up. This is this looks cute. I'm not gonna lie. I like kids' shows. As like even as like a full fledged adult, I still like kids' shows. I know that's kind of weird to some people. They're like, "Why would you want to watch kids' oh, shows?" I love but it. Kids' shows have like the best theme songs. Well, not always, but a lot of them have really great theme songs. And those suckers are catchy. I have and will always love 
jingles and theme songs. I've always had a passion for them. I've always loved them. I make my own jingles for life, walk around creating stuff. People are like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's my theme song for the day. It's fine. It's fine. But so like kids shows to me, I'm always like, oh, I kind of want to check it out just to see if their, their music is any good. Or like if the theme song is any good or like some sort of combination of that. The music specifically in Bluey is, uh, I think it's fantastic. I might be biased because I do know one of the composers for it, but <laughs> it's so catchy. Like it gets stuck in my head constantly, but I'm also the same where I constantly am just singing the song, making up whatever it is that I'm doing. I will, I never make a theme song for my day. I, I sing and narrate activities that I'm doing, but I think I might might start making a theme song. Hey, it's fun. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm not really like a songwriter type, so these are pretty uh, basic jingles okay don't 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 think uh anything fantastical or nothing because it's not okay this is this is some pretty basic stuff but i have such a ball walking around singing my little theme song i want to ask a different question so my question is what is your favorite sonically speaking theme song that you've heard for either the effects or for you know just the production value in general oh that's a really good question. I mean, honestly, the thing that came to mind first was it's not a theme song, but it's like a sonic motif, which is that, you know, the THX sound effect from when you're in the cinema and it's like the testing, the Dolby surround, like the that and like the PlayStation 1 turning on sound really... Oh, yeah really hit a a core little part of my brain that's like oh that's so exciting like it's this big anticipation kind of thing but they're not theme songs they're just like sounds that <laughs> they are. are like come before something that's make me super excited I mean how is that any different than like the AOL right like everybody remembers AOL you know it's like if you don't I mean you probably weren't born if you don't remember it but everybody who was around for the for the time of AOL, right? Like that theme song, like it's not even the theme song, the tonality that comes on and you're just like, you've got mail or any of the AOL ones. Well, so that was also an American thing because we didn't yeah. have we didn't have AOL in Australia, no. but we, you know, I had dial-up. We still had, you know, <laughs> the internet. <laughs> it was just a, a different server. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it AOL literally stands for America Online or something yeah. like that. America. <laughs> but I mean, my my text message tone on my iPhone is the sound of when you get a message or when you used to get a message on MSN Messenger. Uh-huh. The little bloop. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. It's real. Super satisfying. So for me, I know that the theme song that I really like, sonically speaking, is for the TV show Psych. Psych. I love that theme song. Yeah. I've seen Psych. Psych is hilarious. It's making fun of crime TV shows, to be quite honest. Oh, cool. (laughs) Great. And this guy, he's like a psychic detective. Yeah. He's just super observant. (laughs) That's not like giving anything away. That's literally the premise of the show. And he's like convinced these people that he's psychic or whatever. Uh, But he's just super observant. And so his his, like best friend go on these like wacky adventures. 
in California with the police department and solve crimes and stuff. It's hilarious. That's I think great. it's hilarious. That's awesome. And like they'll have these episodes where they will have like a theme. And so then they'll change the theme song to match the theme. So uh, one of the theme songs they did was his partner's, his name is Burden Guster, Gus for short. And he was a part of a black acapella group when he was in college. And so one of the members of the group got killed and died. And so that's the premise of the episode. And so since they were part of a black acapella group, they were like, oh, we'll get boys to men to sing the theme song. And so they have this boys to men version of a theme song. And then they have like a Bollywood version of the theme song. And then they have a Tears for Fears version of the theme song. And they did this every so often. And so I just really like, first of all, the theme song. But second, (laughs) I really like the sort of sonic aspect of it, the production value of it, because I think it's really cool they're able to do that and and this I don't know it's just it's a thing for me yeah it's I think it's anyone who like those those shows that have people who are creating arrangements and compositions that vary like I think the first one that I really remember hearing about doing that was Seinfeld and the the fact that that baseline and that the composition changes and is performed to the comedy routine every episode uniquely blew my mind where I was like oh man that's someone's job that they get to sit there <laughs> and did, you know create a variation on this this track and I think also like 30 Rock and all of the the stuff all of the arrangements and compositions for that always felt really succinct like it it made sense like it was very big and orchestral and theatrical but it was that other thing where it was like a unique kind of arrangement per episode do you have an album that makes you feel that way as well like from the production side of it do you have an album that sort of speaks to you in that way as well um I mean I have I have my like my little handful list of my top albums but I think that they're for different reasons that I like them like my kind of go-to favorite album is um cat powers jukebox which was cat power doing covers of all kinds of like classic like hank williams songs and like johnny cash songs and other stuff but done in a live studio with a a live session band and it feels like you're in the room with it like if you listen on good speakers or good headphones like you're in it and you're you're essentially in a live album but it's very studio produced so it's like it's this nice contrast between it where you get to feel like the experience of it but otherwise the majority of my my listening and what I go like gravitate to is all just like dirty punk tracks so I'm listening to two minute songs (laughs) that are short sharp and all sound pretty much the same so it's not my not my default you said that and it made me think Somebody told me about this and I remember looking it up like before, but now I don't remember it. And I was going to ask you about it, but then I couldn't remember their name. Okay. So here's the story. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) There was this band who they were like a punk band, I guess. And they couldn't get like any radio play or anything like that or recognition in any sort of fashion. And so what they decided to do 
was to make an, an album or whatever of all these like super short songs. And then they paid for advertising spots for the songs to be played. Oh, that does vaguely sound familiar, but I, I also couldn't tell you the band because I know there's also a few bands that have done stuff like that where they then like they created weird little advertising campaigns to to promote their stuff or they like made one song that was super radio friendly that was nothing like the rest of their albums so then they would have people rock up to their shows and be like we make good music just not like that come listen to it and then like developed followings yeah I don't know but that's a great that's a great strategy it is a great strategy. It'd be so much better if I could remember who they were. You know, that definitely would add to the value of that being a great strategy. We'll, we'll Google it. We'll figure it out. Well, I was never, I'm not like a super punk person. Like I like punk in general, like in like, like as a, like a vibe, you know, but I was never like, a, I was, I was more of the pop punk emo kids genre. Oh, you know? me too. Where people are like, that's not real punk music. And I'm like, eh, whatever, it was punk to me. <laughs> But I never like went backwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think for me, like I, I use punk to kind of categorize the the big genre. So <laughs> essentially I I work as a uni lecturer, so I have to explain concepts like genre and breaking things into these sorts of categories. I pretty much have to give the same conversation and the same spiel like every couple of months because I'll have a new class where I then need to teach the same thing to and I feel like my default way of explaining punk now is that I think of it as the ethos of producing something that's kind of DIY it's dirty you're using fuzz kind of textures and distortion and you know all these interesting tones but it it is so varied it's like rock now like you have emo punk you have garage punk you've got like surf punk you've got all these variants and typically the stuff I like is the like garagey surfy stuff but yeah there's there's like an origin point but I'm like yeah that's everything has its origin point like we can talk about rock as being like Bill Haley in the comments like uh, old shit or you can actually go yeah well but rock came from blues yeah and yeah. from all of this other shit. And it's like, well, yeah, they all have an origin point. I, I like the, the just noisy shit. Yeah. That's what's good. <laughs> so, I mean, that's primarily what you mix, though, right, at the bookstore? Is it mostly that sort of style? I don't know. It seemed like that when I was, like, on YouTube. It seemed to be more of that sort of genre and then sort of more the folky singer songwritery guitar-y stuff. Yeah. So the record store is focused in on mostly sort of independent kind of artists or at least like trying to promote Australian artists as much as possible. And I think the typical kind of culture in Australia, we obviously have pop music and we've we've got everything, but I think there is a really big popularity for like indie rock kind of stuff and that then kind of fell into the the majority of the bands that that we would get in or be working with or who would be promoting an album and we'd be doing sound for them or something like that but yeah it's it's just kind of like what's around the most and the the circles that I'm in like that's that's kind of the the genres that tend to crop up the most I'm not really doing the metal gigs as much yeah no I get that I know like when I was in Austin I spent a lot of time with like country music 
I'm not a country music person, but like the bluegrass country southern rock style is just around in Texas. And it just so happened that I kept being around those bands. Totally. And it was just like, all right, well, here you go. But people would be like, don't you do any other kind of music? Oh, yeah, I do all other kinds of stuff. Like musicals are huge on this list. But the day-to-day stuff is primarily that style. So I get that. Okay, so you talking about the store just made me want to ask. So like recently I did, I'm not like super into like streaming and doing shows at the same time, but I was doing a musical and they also wanted to stream the musical at the same time, which is incredibly difficult. Uh, (laughs) And it made me think about like sort of your situation with making, you were mixing the bands live in the store And then you're also taking that and making it into YouTube videos. And I kind of wonder, like, what is, like, the biggest challenge in having to do that? Okay, so, like, one of the videos that I saw by total accident, this lady was, like, playing and she's talking about how her guitar just has this, like, noise that's just going to exist. (laughs) And you're like, I mean, that's not really ideal. (laughs) I hope we don't want your guitar just to have noise while we're playing live but also I have to record this and put this on the internet and it's also supposed to sound good right and so it just makes me kind of wonder what are some I don't know unique challenges or un-unique challenges to, <laughs> to being able to do that yeah so with the with the record source stuff I said pretty much since COVID started I have sort of stopped working next we haven't been really doing any gigs but for all of the gigs, there's essentially two setups. We have a really tiny store, like it's real small. <laughs> and within that space, it it means that if we are setting up a band and we put a drum kit in there and we put some guitars, some vocalists, my PA and everything ready to run, that takes up about half the store space. So at maximum capacity, with no social distancing, we could fit about 40, maybe 50 people inside the space, including performers. And with that, essentially the sound that I'm doing, I'm really just reinforcing and I'm trying to turn the amps and the drums down as much as I possibly can so that I don't destroy someone's ears. But the the process then becomes how how do I actually capture that stuff or what's the best kind of like signal flow routing process if I'm putting something through a PA but I'm also running it into a recorder because it's a very DIY little setup in there. So I had a, a friend engineer me a whole heap of split XLR cables so that I could just take the vocal mic and run it into the mixer and also into a little portable recorder and that meant that I could then also chuck a whole heap of mics on everything and just have clean recordings to be able to work with so there wasn't any overlap or I didn't have to worry about anything I was doing on the mixer affecting the recording at the end of the day but yeah it's just working in a small room is really challenging then when you do stuff outside you have to reinforce everything because we've got a little park next door to the store so it's nice to do it in, over there, but it's more work because then you've got to power yeah. everything. Yeah. And it's a whole other. It's running like a, a full outdoor event. It's a different situation. It is. Outdoor, I don't know. Full, full situations are kind of 
this might be a slightly controversial statement, probably not. Uh, <laughs> I feel like running a full band to me is so much easier than not running a full band. So only like the vocals are amped or only, you know, the piano and the vocals are amped. I feel like that because I feel like when you mix partial groups, then there's people who are like, yeah, but I can't hear whatever, insert thing, right? And you're like, yeah, like about that. Or like if like somebody's guitar amp is too loud, which typically always tends to be a thing, right? It's like guitar amps are just loud. That's just how this works, right? And so it'll be like, oh, well, the amp is too loud, but I can't turn it down. But there's only so much you can boost these other things. Totally. You know? And so I feel like to me, I would take miking everything. (laughs) and having control over everything than like the partial setup. But no, some people who like partial setups more. Yeah, I think, I don't think I have a, a direct preference, really. I I prefer a stripped back miking. Like I'd prefer to have one or two mics on my drum kit rather than have every single tom and cymbal mic. But that's also just my taste of being like, yeah, just messy drums anyway. I don't need to hear the hi-hat separately to the crash. It's fine. <laughs> But I I think for me, like, I I like the acoustics kind of challenge of how do I get this amp that I'm not miking to project equally to the performer so that they can hear themselves equally to the audience and be at a good level for people standing at the front of the venue and also a good level for people standing midway or back in the venue because you're essentially creating a, a variety of mixes because obviously if you mic everything, then you can do one, you're good. But otherwise, yeah, it's another little challenge and there's always going to be difficulties that come along with that. But I feel like through just having very DIY sort of non-funded projects where it's like, hey, do you have some amps we can borrow? Do you have a PA that we can borrow? What can we throw together and make this happen? I feel like through that, I've just kind of got comfortable with being like, oh, I've only got four mics. Okay, we'll make it work. It'll be fine. Like, just figure it out. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I know, like, a friend of mine calls that uh, sort of, if you want to call it a phase, you can, but she calls it the, uh, oh, fiddle six. What is it called when you have, oh, she calls it jam band mixing. There, there we go. I was like, the word will come back to me. <laughs> she calls it jam band mixing. And she and I kind of both agree on this idea, which is jam band mixing is probably one of the best things that you can do as an engineer in the beginning, especially because it forces you to have to deal with different situations that aren't necessarily ideal, right? And you can't necessarily control all of the parts in that either. But it allows for you to be able to be like, okay, well, how flexible of a person can I be? How quick can I think on my on my feet? And how can I make the best sound out of what's being given to me? And then also just interacting with humans, right? Like jam band situations, people, the people are different. They vary in types of humans and their personalities, right? <laughs> and so it's like, all right, well, if you can get along with these people, you probably get along with everybody because you have such a variety. And so jam band mixing totally i yeah i think it's like it's also especially in live environments like i feel like my progression is i did more studio stuff and then i did a big phase of doing live sound stuff 
And then I started really wanting to push into the the post kind of area. And where I've settled at now is me being like, I want to work in games as my core focus. Like that's what I want. But I've kind of like at least put a few years into like solidly into each of these different disciplines. And I feel like live is the thing that made me realize that even if I screw up, it's going to be all right. If I'm working on the same track, but as a mix where I have it here on my computer and I can sit there and I can tweak the tone of that snare or my reverb send levels or, you know, doing whatever for for hours, I'm going to obsess over it and be like, oh, it's frustrating me. Whereas doing live, it's like, oh man, I'm so annoyed. Like I made that track feedback in the middle and like you can be annoyed about it, but the gig's done now. You can't go back and fix it. So I think that kind of like workflow of live has made me be much more comfortable in releasing demo stuff and be working on a project and going, ah, yeah, here's this. I think it's okay. I don't know. But I made it and there it is. I'll do another one. I think that that sort of ethos that comes that has to come along with live if you're going to do it and not beat yourself up about it every day. you learn to be like, yep, yeah, cool. I did the best that I could. And now we do another another gig, another project. Keep moving. Yeah, I feel like that is a lesson that is really hard to learn. I think, at least for me, it was. That was like a huge thing that I struggled with when I was like first getting out. I was like, ah, and I, and I have a naturally excessive personality when I think that I can do something that's better. And I'm like, I know that what I'm doing is not, absolute perfect and it's like yeah that's okay though right but it's also like finding the balance between not perfect but the best that you could realistically totally yeah but i think it's interesting i think it's also really hard it's a hard lesson to learn so yay for you for learning it you know (laughs) yeah i mean i guess it's also like i'm constantly telling students that they should be showing me or their peers or other people work through to earlier stages so that they can get feedback they can make improvements but I absolutely understand that idea of you know it wanting it to be perfect before anyone else sees it but I think because I've had to reinforce that to students for so long telling them that it's okay I've just like subconsciously tricked myself into believing that as well which is useful First off, you've talked about teaching a lot. So I feel like we should, like, I know that you are professor, not professor, (laughs) instructor. That's the one I was looking for. Apparently, okay, so in Googling words, because I randomly, I couldn't remember how to spell professor. I've always struggled with spelling. This is not new in my camp. That's why I have things that tell me I've spelled words wrong. The benefit of the internet. Right? I looked at the technical definition of a professor, and apparently professor is supposed to be specifically reserved for people who have PhDs. I didn't know that. I was like, wait, what? That's a thing? Didn't know. So I decided that since, you know, words have meaning, right? And we should be mindful of those words having definitions and meanings that I should be better about that. So I'm trying not to call you a professor because I don't, pretty sure you don't have a PhD. I don't, know. <laughs> if you look at my my contract, I'm a, a lecturer because we don't really lecture at people anymore. I think the how organization anyway has transitioned to calling it a facilitator. Either way, I teach people stuff. That's that's the core of it. <laughs> that's what it is. 
Yeah. Okay. So first off, on well, first off, whatever. Uh, when I was on your resume, you were talking about what it is that you're like studying as a teacher person. I didn't know how to phrase that properly. That was a terrible sentence. <laughs> as a yeah, as a teacher person, I. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to know what I studied or do you want to know what I teach oh my god okay I was trying to ask what you studied sure and that came out as also somehow what do you teach and then that was just like that was a failure as a teacher person um what is it that you actually do at the university and then what did you study while also at the same university that's the sentence we're going to go with there it is yeah, cool, great. Yeah, so I studied SAE is a an organization that there's there's a whole heap of these like creative college campuses around in Australia, but also like worldwide. There's a heap of them. And I studied at one in Byron Bay, which is like three hours away from me here in Brisbane. And I studied a, a Bachelor of Audio Production and then went off into the world and did some freelance stuff for a couple of years, but then got a call from one of my old lecturers that was like, hey, there's an entry teaching position if you want some stuff. And I've now been teaching there and upgrading my qualifications for, it will be eight years this year, which is wild. So yeah, I essentially did that. And now I teach variations of the degrees because it's all changed a lot since when I studied. But we we essentially teach all aspects of audio production in the the audio degree. So we start off with acoustics and introduction to mics and tech and, you know, electrical stuff and just understanding the, the fundamentals of sound physics and how to use recording equipment and then build on those skills. So build on the skills in music production, teaching people how to work with artists and coach performances and, very much focused on the engineering and production side of stuff. There's parts of it where you learn about like arrangement and composition, but we have a separate music degree if that's your whole thing. If you want to just do the engineering, you can just do that. And then feed into all the other areas. So we do then live sound, we do post-production, we collaborate with the other film students and game students and animation students and try and make collaborative stuff. And then take students through to their final creative kind of project where then they get to pick whatever they want to make as their sort of capstone thing, which could be any combination of all of the things. So we try and teach all facets of the the audio side of stuff. But my side of it, I've evolved out of the entry trimester one stuff. So I don't have to be like, hello, this is a microphone. I get to do more of the like, hey, cool. How do you make a guitar sound? like that with that tone or why does the jump sound in that game have that cool little squish to it how do we make it sound like that and doing foley production stuff which is super fun okay so on your resume you wrote that you do independent research into new and evolving technology and trends with creative industries with a focus in audio what exactly does that mean <laughs> Cool. So if you think about, like if we use games as an example, right, the stereotypical example would be as we start to see new pieces of tech come through, like new platforms to be able to 
to actually play and engage with game concepts or variations on old concepts with VR tech or new softwares, like looking at like even podcast technology, the fact that there are these dedicated platforms that are designed and built in, allow someone who has a lot less technical ability, you can have people editing, processing, you know, manipulating their audio, creating content. You've got platforms like Lambda and all these other like automatic kind of AI mastering processes and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of part of my job to to make sure that I'm as aware as possible of upcoming technology that is involving audio in some way so that I can hopefully try and teach my students about it, but at least start practicing it and getting involved with it. It's more making it part of my job to be across new tech in any respect if it involves audio in some way. I should know about it and should know how to operate it. Okay. That makes sense. So what would be, like, I guess a new piece of tech that came out fairly recently, uh, so give it what, in the last three years, that feels fairly recent, I guess, um, that like made you like super excited then that you were like, yo, this tech is like super dope, or this is definitely something that's like super useful or some combination of that. Sure. I mean, the literally the first thing that comes to mind is TikTok, which is not a tech, right? Like it's not, it's not directly that, but it's, it's a wild tool that people are using now. It's got such a just absolute iron grip on the music industry now. If you creating a, a piece of audio that has a good hook to it, something that is catchy, something that people could dance to, or it just is a good sound bite. You can release something on that platform and have wild success where it then skyrockets you into the top 20 songs of, you know, internationally. And I think just the ability of of people to, the way that TikTok works, it is based around you recreating stuff with sound or you know using someone else's sound adapting someone's sound remixing it repurposing doing that sort of stuff i think it's it's really opened up the world of audio to a whole heap of you know young kids essentially that wouldn't necessarily think about it in that way and they're not using it in a high production level way at the moment but i think there's a lot of people that are starting to pick up audio in general and understand basic mixing or editing principles because of just wanting to create something with virality. And I think it's a it's a weird case study. So I'm not saying it's all good. It's not it's definitely not. But I think it's super interesting. And it's like it's it's just a, a really wild little rabbit hole to kind of dive down and the the impacts that it has generally on on audio and on music especially. Yeah. I can see that. I get that. I remember like Meg the Stallion's song came out. Thought shit, that's the name of the song. But I remember the effect that that had on the song when it came out because TikTok dancers were like, we're not going to make a dance because people are stealing our stuff. And then there became like this whole thing around the song and people not making dances and then people were kind of making dances but 
it was like now she's associated with like the sort of mocking of other individuals or whatever and i just remember like watching the impact of something like that happen through tiktok even though i'm not anywhere near tiktok the fact that it like permeated into my world to me was such a huge indicator of how big something like that could be so i totally get your point yeah it's it's just a weird little thing because there absolutely are the like weird negative sort of spins from it where sounds get used you know not as the artist intended it or you know not in positive ways but there's also other trends like where especially like the side of tiktok figures out who you are real quick it's it's algorithm is like oh cool you're a a young white queer woman who lives in brisbane australia got it locked down so immediately like all of the the content that i get is then i constantly get artists like phoebe bridges and mitski and all of these other artists who are like typically female typically probably related to you know queer spectrum somehow or at least allied and in that process, it then becomes a trend to use one of their songs to just talk about that particular issue that you're dealing with or like show craft videos. But if it's specifically related to that particular scene or a particular topic, you'll people will use a particular audio to, I guess, reinforce meaning. And there's these songs that then no one's dancing to, no one's singing along to, no one's lip syncing, but I associate that song with the themes of the video that people are attaching it to. And then whole trends are built off that alone. And I think like that subversiveness of just like the audio being such a core component of the sharing process. I'm just like, it's wild. It it blows my mind. Yeah. I, I remember when TikTok first came out and I was just like, okay, another one of these apps. And now it's like this global phenomenon of like, epic tomfoolery and it's i mean i don't mean tomfoolery in a bad way i just mean it's just there's a lot going on with tiktok you know <laughs> just a lot i guess can you think of a specific example of audio specific then equipment that kind of has like a similar vibe in like the audio world specifically but i know tiktok is i mean it's audio but you know it's yeah it's not not the level that we're talking about yeah i i guess really i'm the things that I'm playing around with at the moment aren't really new in this the scheme of the world, right? Like, realistically, in the last couple of years, I've not kept up with as much stuff as I probably could have because the world's a bit wild right now and we're just trying to do every day is its own unique challenge. But I think for for me, like, I'm the tool that I'm most excited about at the moment is Fmod, which is the audio middleware software between your game engine and, and your door and just the the realm of possibilities of of using audio middleware for game production obviously is what I'm looking at it for at the moment but you can also then use it in installation art or in in anything where there is a, a sensor or something as input data and you want a sound to trigger out on the other side and you know manipulate sound it's it's a super beefy tool and i'm trying to get my head around it at the moment fully okay so for people who don't know what fmod is what exactly is it 
So if you are working on something that is interactive, if you have created all of your sound library inside of your your door and you've created foley, dialogue, ambiences, music, whatever else it is, and you need those sounds to do something when you input data. Let's say that you hold down a joystick on your controller and you walk your character forward, you probably want footsteps to come up. What we could do is we could take that audio sample and we can drop it into the game engine and say, play footstep when step. That's also fine, but you don't get as much control over the audio. So what FMOD allows you to do is set a whole heap of additional parameters and manipulate it. So I could say that when my character walks from outside to inside, I want to alter the reverb and I want to make sure that it sounds appropriate for the space so that I have more variation. I could also set randomized parameters on the pitch of the footsteps that they choosing a slightly different pitch variation to make it sound more interesting when I've only actually dropped two raw audio files into it. So it allows you to just create all of this diversity from a quite small package of original sounds you still have to create it you still have to do all the sound design stuff inside of your door which is super fun anyway but now you get to choose how it will actually play back in a much more detailed kind of way which is very creative and super fun first off that sounds super amazing that's probably like one of the coolest things i've heard of recently what led you to like video games then because before we're talking about live sound and teaching and post-production things in general, I guess. But now you're like video games. So like, how did you go from all of that to video games? Now there's anything wrong with that. It's just, I, that's an interesting transition. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, that's so fair. I mean, I've, I guess it was more just what I was exposed to, right? So like growing up and knowing that I was interested in audio and I was interested in sound, the thing that they, kind of pitch to you is like oh well you could record an album or you could work at a radio station or you could you could do sound for live gigs and those were kind of the the only options so when I was at uni those were the things that I focused on and those were the things that I really built my core skills in but I've always played games and I've always loved sound design and I've always like it's always been a, a super passion thing like I um I asked my mum I was like when I know that I played games when I was really little, but how old would I have been? And then we went back through remembering I had these little Game & Watch, like the precursor to Game Boys. And I had to make sure that I could show that I could take care of that and that I wouldn't break it before mum would let me play games on the PC. And then I asked her when that transition happened because I was like, oh, I must have been like four or five or something around that age and she was like no you were playing dos games on the pc when you were 18 months old so oh <laughs> i've been apparently playing some variety of of games since uh before i was two wow so because of that i'm like oh man it really is just ingrained in my brain as to you know how how it works but i think what what really made me want to start making it was it is something that I like the way that game workflows work. 
most of my colleagues that I spend the most time with and I connect with the best are games lecturers. So I happen to be in an environment where we also teach game design and programming. So I get to be around people who are specialists in that field and start to then collaborate with them and be like, wouldn't it be cool if we made a game like this? And then we just started making stuff. So we're still in early stages, really. It's been a couple of years of playing around with stuff, but we don't have any released titles yet. But I've got like three on the go kind of game projects that we're we're working on and I'm it's the thing that's grabbing my attention the most it keeps me excited about it so are these games primarily for PC or are they more like mobile games or some sort of combination of both um I mean ideally I mean, if you can say that I don't want to yeah no no it's fine <laughs> I mean I yeah ideally it'll be the thing where it it'll be available on multiple platforms like that's that's the goal it's it's typically easier to knock out a build that will work on on PC first so that'll probably be the first thing and then we'll be making it with mobile in mind so i think those two are the the primary ones and then once we get them working and we're comfortable and you know if there's enough want for it then we can also develop uh like i play playstation mostly so i would like to build a playstation build so that i could put it on on my system but yeah definitely pc and and mobile are the first goals for any new project, definitely. What would be a game who sonically that you like really admire the way that their sound or their effects or any of that sort of stuff sounds to you that you're like, this is like the game that like inspires me in these ways or that you really enjoy or, or some, or even like storytelling wise, because I think that's also part of audio in a lot of ways as well. It's a huge part of it. Yeah, audio in post-production. The example that I always love to give is I, I play something that's like a really typical happy kind of film scene where, you know, you've got people walking around and there's normally quite positive, uplifting music to it. If you throw a piece of like really drawn out, creepy, suspenseful horror music over the top of that, anyone watching it immediately is then looking in the corner of the screen trying to see, is there something going to jump out? Like, what's going to happen? So like the the impact of audio and storytelling is is huge. For me, I uh, I think it's in it's in a couple of different categories, right? Like the games that inspire me the most at the moment are typically smaller scale indie kind of productions because it's stuff that I'm drawing inspiration from and stuff that can feel more achievable where I can go, "Oh, I could build a game like that." Like I alone with me and my like one or two other people I'm collaborating with, we can't build Red Dead Redemption. Like, we we can't do that. I love the sound in Red Dead. That's probably one of my, my top in terms of, like, interactive score, an interactive soundtrack. It was one of the, the first big AAA titles that did the interactive score in a really cool way where it's like you hop on your horse and a bass line kicks in, right? Like people start chasing you or shooting at you and then the drums kick in. And then as that fight fades out, then it will all just like those layers will drop out. And like putting together the maths of going, okay, so they just composed stems it's all in the same key. It's all in the same tempo. You trigger it to start. I was like, oh, okay, I can put that together. Like I can see how you how you make that. But I think the games that's, that inspire me most of the time are, are more small scale stuff. So like 
there's a big trend happening at the moment where people are creating small indie games, but visually designing them to look like PS1 games or PS2 games where they're like low res graphics, but with really high quality sound. And I'm super here for it. Or also just doing things where like the, the sound is doing the, the majority of the storytelling. So there's this really cool little indie game called Islands Non Places. And it is essentially just like monochromatic little 3D environments that you get dropped into. And you just kind of have to click on stuff. Like something might light up and it you get the feeling that it wants you to click on it. And you work your way through the environment. But it's really just shapes with some shading on it. But the, the sound and the ambiences of those environments is telling you the whole story. Like, you know that this is set in a shopping mall for that particular level because it sounds like you're in a mall. Like, it sounds like like that's what it is. And you go, oh, okay, cool. And then you move to one little other area and you go, it's just a square and something else. But I can tell that you, this is a bus stop. Like, this is a different environment. And I think... That sort of stuff is is super exciting where you go, oh, yeah, I can do heaps. I just have to be clever about how I put the story together. That's actually really cool. I wouldn't call myself like a huge gamer. I like games. I like a handful of games. Games that I like now that are really pretty and that sound good are Ori and the Blind Forest. I really like that one. Yeah, I've I've definitely seen that one. I haven't played it, but I've seen clips from it. It's so pretty. I love the music. The orchestral music is fantastic. I actually really, really like that game. I like playing Factorio, but that doesn't have anything to do with the audio for it. I just mute the audio, actually, for the game. But I I appreciate the sound effects in the game. The sound effects in that game are, are really cool, and I like the way that they're set up and stuff, and I like how they're triggered. Now you can, like they have music and stuff that's built into the game, obviously. But since I have to think so much about stuff, I I just disregard it. And, but the first time I ever played it, I really had an appreciation for the sound effects in that game. I mean, that's literally the, the point of this like middleware software, right? Like the, the whole goal of that is to create something that is changing or immersive or does something beyond just like, Oh yeah, cool. Played the song, the end. Yeah. Like, you know, it's meant to yeah. meant to keep you engaged. And I think this is also part of it, right? Like the the engagement of it. I think it the importance of it varies so much depending on the type of game. So my partner and I, we just finished playing through Red Dead Two, like a week or two ago, and looking at the hour count, I can't look at it. The, as a at a number but we're definitely over 100 hours that we've put into just doing the main sort of storyline if the sound was the same repeating score for that amount of time there's no way that i would be keeping the sound on right like i would immediately be muting it <laughs> it would just drive you insane what you don't want to be like k-dramas where they play the same song for every type of scenario you don't you don't want to be like oh Here's the same song that they played at the beginning, but it's supposed to be sad now. Yeah, but <laughs> but that drama, I don't think, goes for over 100 hours, right? <laughs> I mean, exactly. some of them K-dramas be yeah. going for, for <laughs> yeah. a long time. That's very true. 
But yeah, it's I think like little <laughs> little short format things. You can kind of get away with it and be like, yeah, it's fun. Like here's a little repeating thing, and you go, yeah, it's okay. I'm not gonna, I'm not super excited about it. But there's something about putting that little bit of extra effort in to make it engaging that makes you want to, especially with mobile games, right? Like my phone's never not on silent. It's always on silent. I'd never, I never want to hear messages or emails or other things coming through. Like, no, because I'll probably be recording or doing something, right? So my phone is always on mute. So if I play a game on my phone, the default for me is to mute it. And I'll test the sound when I start it, but it's got to be good for me to keep my sound on and for me to want to listen to it. So I think that like putting that effort in and wanting to get engagement and the buy-in, as soon as you've got someone putting earphones in so that they can listen to your game and they can hear it properly, I think that's a win for the entire production because you then have locked someone with more than just their tactile senses and their visual senses you've locked in another one of those senses so they're they're in it they're committed i think it's an interesting psychological kind of thing okay with that headphones for your phone isn't exactly like super high res you know when usually when people make music the production side of it people the composers those sort of people they're listening on like these super high quality speakers and it's like you're in a room that's like super well tuned then you're like having this experience in a space where sonically everything is just like set up for ideal listening totally so i guess the question is then how do you take that sort of idea realizing that and trying to apply it to cell phones and smaller audio devices that are more commercial grade that aren't necessarily like <laughs> top shelf liqueur liqueur of audio experiences right <laughs> oh absolutely i think well and i think that's part of it right i think the if you're producing a game for whatever platform right pc mobile console whatever you have to assume that people are going to hear it in the worst possible scenarios even if you're making music the fact that everybody is probably playing music from their phone, right? When I listen to music, the source is either my laptop or my phone. Like I'm in the car, my phone is connected in my car, so I hear it out of car speakers. I'm walking around, I'm listening to it with like Bluetooth headphones or something that I'm I'm connected with. I'm playing it on the TV. I'll either play it straight out of my tv if i can be bothered i'll connect my actual sound system so i can hear it properly or if it's something where i really want the surround set up because i don't have a good surround sound system here i'll then use headphones so that i can get the directionality like if i'm playing Fortnite or something and i'm like oh there's someone over there where is it so like that process all through that i'm keeping that in my mind as an engineer the whole way i'm assuming that someone is going to miss it, listen to my mix that i've just put up onto spotify through their crappy phone speaker <laughs> like they're going to just hit play and go oh yeah it sounds all right so i'm i'm mixing and mastering and processing with that in mind and the fundamental of you know I'm still obviously making sure it sounds good through good speakers and in a proper tuned environment, but I'm also then splitting the difference. 
with my mix, depending on what the release platform is. So if I'm releasing a game for mobile, I am going to make sure it sounds good on headphones. I'm going to make sure that my ambience is really detailed and stereo and, and spatial. But my core sound effects that are the core ones I've established for gameplay, they need to sound good on a dodgy speaker or on AirPods. Like, they need to sound decent. And it's not ideal. Like, I'd love for everybody to have a really good set of monitors that they were listening to everything I produce on. That would be amazing. But I, I think it's just unrealistic to think of it that way. And so I then do my best to take into consideration the device but also listening levels i think is something that i don't know if you paid attention during early and like acoustics classes if you did an audio degree you probably remember a little bit about like sound waves and levels and if you remember there's a thing called the fletcher munson curve that's my favorite one is that like really sets the groundwork for every mix or balance that I'm doing is I'm paying attention to the levels that someone will play my my mobile game at. They're probably not going to play it at 90 dB. So <laughs> I need to adapt to try and make it sound good. You said it, so I'm going to clarify my own history. I actually have a degree in applied mathematics. I did not actually go to school to be a sound engineer. I started off trying to do that, but that did not finish <laughs> so they did not finish <laughs> I mean that's it's a step up for me I I maths is my brain is geared for linguistics like I'm geared for language I am not geared for numbers and when I then started a degree where we had to start doing like full physics calculations to do acoustic engineering I was like oh no this is my nightmare <laughs> I hate this um so it, it didn't work. Like I, I know the things I need to know, but I, I don't remember formulas or other things that are unnecessary or things that I could Google. I'll look it up again later. She said, "Are things that I could Google?" You know, everybody always says that, which I think is really funny because I think about how much time I save by not having to Google a formula, which people are like, "Okay, it's like a few seconds," and I'm like, "Yes, but let's add up those seconds over the course of like a month." Or sure. a year. Sure. How many minutes, hours that I save myself by knowing it? Not that I'm saying that you have to memorize it. I'm just saying for me, because people oh, totally. are always like, oh, that's uh, just, just like a useless thing. And I'm like, is it though? <laughs> but like, is it though? But as for talking about audio on different devices and that sort of thing, it makes me wonder, then how do you handle the fact that these different platforms have different levels of compression that they add in naturally to whatever it, that's being uploaded to their platforms. Because, I mean, that has been something that, like, even just for podcasting, it's been, like, a semi-struggle for me because I was, like, I had to then sort of uh, fluctuate on different things and, like, Amazon's upload is different than Spotify's, which is different than Apple's. And you're like, okay, guys, we couldn't all universally come together and be like, this is how much compression we're going to add. Or better yet, I don't know, don't add any. I don't know, whatever. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So when you say, comp just to make sure I'm 100% on the same page, when you say compression, are you talking about audio compression or are you talking about data file compression? Because it's definitely doing the file compression side of stuff. But depending on the platform, is it doing audio compression? It does both. So, yeah. 
Spotify has, I mean, obviously, you know, you up, well, let's use YouTube. YouTube is a little bit better of an example, right? Like you upload a, a file to YouTube, they're going to compress it and, and do what YouTube does best, right? <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, as far as my understanding of it, since, and look, this may have changed because I haven't, I haven't been keeping 100% on top of it because I haven't been releasing much stuff lately. But it was a few years ago when they introduced the, the LUFS level mastering uh, and, and actually setting that rather than a, a DB level. I was under the impression that if you were setting yourself up with that level of dynamics on YouTube and Spotify, maybe, that it then was just essentially taking your average level and setting you to that loss level so if you over compress to make your mix louder that you actually in, a, in effect get turned down on youtube so yes and no at least to my understanding again i'm not an expert on youtube i youtube is not really my bag of chips but to my understanding yes that was part of it in terms of the loudness loves instead of db and having that sort of combination but in terms of data files they compress them to be able to host so many videos and so in that aspect yes and then again to my understanding in doing that as well it forces your audio quality to be degraded to some degrees as well because now your file that's hosting the audio is also less than you know perfect so it was sort of like a combination of the compression issue of the LUFs, but also just overall data is now less in quality. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, I guess I, I don't know. There's a there's a great video actually on YouTube where a guy takes a recording of himself and he uh, uploads it to YouTube and then downloads it from YouTube and then re-uploads it and downloads it and re-uploads it. I've seen it. videos like that. Yeah, and so like you you get to see and hear the uh the impacts of the the data compression real real good yeah look i'm absolutely not an expert on it and i probably based on this conversation probably gonna go and do some more research because i don't think i'm up to date on it but i think the the way for me anyway is i i'm not as concerned about it in the media that i'm working on at the moment because as a core concept when you're dealing with games the audio files have to be minuscule in their size because if you put a game up on let's say the the app store for someone to download if you take into into account all of the footage rendering all of the animation all of just the general processing that's required to operate and run the game as well as then collecting all of your audio files together and dropping them into the game if you didn't compress anything my audio files alone would be gigabytes <laughs> like yeah. for tiny little samples so i'm already kind of under the impression of like I'm going to have to like downgrade the quality of this sample anyway, right? So in those platforms, I'm not as concerned. If I'm doing podcasting or if I'm doing something that is just dialogue recording, I think I'm keeping the the kind of theories of 
what is the highest frequencies we actually need because essentially you're going to lose your highs uh, in your data compression quicker than anything else so i yes there's degradation in the lower frequencies but the thing that's going to get impacted first and get eliminated is your high frequencies and for vocals like yeah it sounds better if you've got more high frequencies but can i still communicate the intent is the storytelling still there right is it is it manageable is it listenable does it sound too gritty does it sound in like you know not ideal i know that this recording we're doing right now is going to have some good <laughs> audio compression and and some laggy glitches on there it's going to be fun <laughs> yeah it's fun for you to edit but yeah that that process i'm kind of like I, I think I strive for high quality when the platform can handle it and is is set up to run it. If I was doing a PlayStation release, I'm if I download a game, I expect it to be tens, if not in the hundreds, if it's a big game of gigs. Like I expect it to be to be chunky. So I'm not stressed about making it high quality because I assume that someone's gonna be listening to it on a better system. But if it's something for mobile or if it's, you know, podcast where I'm typically going to be listening to it in an unideal environment anyway, I can still make a high quality recording. I can still denoise it. I can still clean it up. I can go through all those processes. But at the end of the day, does that data compression or that little bit of compression that YouTube is applying or whatever other platform, is that knocking off frequencies that the speaker would actually be able to reproduce anyway? Probably not. So am I that concerned about it? Probably not. Like, I think strive for excellence in all cases, but if you need to make those concessions because that's just how we consume media now, because we're not downloading content, I think I just have kind of had to settle for it and be like, that's fine. It doesn't bother me too much. I guess that's maybe the DIY thing as well, right? Uh, this has nothing to do with any of that. But what is sort of the, if you happen to know, the audio makeup um, in terms of demographics in Australia? Like, is it like? It's definitely a male-dominated industry. I was like, what is the word I'm trying to say? There was a word I was looking for, but I couldn't, I couldn't get there. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Look, I can't speak for, for the whole of Australia, but based on what I've experienced, it is a very <laughs> non-diverse field. It is very masculine and very white. That's pretty much it. So I feel like that's it's got pros and cons, right? Like the cons is definitely sort of was more of an issue when I was first starting and trying to build my confidence without having any real role models to look up to. Like I never had a, a female lecturer. So it was just that like, cool, where, who, who am I? Like, where do I see myself in this industry was, was a challenge. But now it's for me, I find it useful because I can kind of like try and give opportunities to students who are marginalized in whatever 
way they might be within our industry to try and give them opportunities to do stuff like come and work with me do live gigs like can I help you with giving you feedback doing stuff you know do you need to put my name on your resume to kind of bolster it is that useful like what can I do to help you but I think it also helps me to stand out because there's not many (laughs) so then you know, people go, oh, you're that engineer that we had two years ago. And I go, yeah, because I'm probably the only female engineer that you've had in the last like three tours that you've done. So that, you know, it's not great, but it I can kind of try to use it to my advantage if I have to. If I'm not mistaken, Brisbane is not, I mean, it's primarily white people, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like it's, it's like, aren't you guys like 70% white people? I don't, like I don't know what the exact percentage is. It's not a number that I keep a keep an eye out on. <laughs> <laughs> it's from walking down the street. Yeah, absolutely. We are. It's a weird place, like Australia. <laughs> I mean, this is like a whole other tangent, right? But like Australia is an interesting place because it is so isolated. It's so removed from everything like we have no borders with any other countries we're we're very separated from everything but like we have a a pretty similar history in terms of our like the white immigration into Australia as what America had we also had whole sections of injustices with like our indigenous population and slavery and a whole heap of other shit that just people don't want to talk about like I feel like everyone's like yeah nah don't don't worry about it which is real stressful to try and have those conversations but it is it's hard to have those conversations I think for a lot of people because they don't see any alternative because they only see people who look like them walking down the street and it is it is very very white especially in more rural areas it's like we had a a national vote for marriage equality a few years ago and because they put it out as a vote to the Australian public of like should the gays have rights (laughs) of which we just got it passed but it made me realize even for something like that that affects white people as well there was still like it was very close to 50 50 of that vote and I was like cool okay so how would you vote on something if it was people who didn't look like you or you know you couldn't relate to it's yeah it's a bit it's a bit weird like we've got this really isolated kind of mentality I think as well which is difficult to try and break through it's very conservative i don't know what the topic was we were talking about white people in australia <laughs> we, well we were talking about specifically audio engineers in australia i asked because here here in the states people talk about how being a sound engineer is a heavily white male dominated field and yes, that's true. I get it, you know, but then it makes me think, okay, well, what is that in proportion to other people? But how is that in proportion to the population of the country that we're in as well? So for example, America itself is primarily white 
currently still, I believe it's like 70% white and then 30% the other people, right? And I think like African-Americans of the 30% of others, or is it like closer to 60? I don't know. We're going to go with 70, 30 because it's an easy number to math, right? And it it makes the point. <laughs> and so then of those 30 people, you know, the Hispanic people, I believe, are the second largest, and then it's Black people, and then it breaks down from there, if I remember the last census correctly. And so you look at that, and you think, okay, well, that's in proportion to the population. So then how does that translate to these career fields? And then do those numbers align with each other? So like, if the population is 70% white, then it would make sense that 70% of the people who work in said field would also be white, right? And then break them down from there. So that's why I asked. It's not to like negate any of it. I just wanted to put context onto it. Absolutely. The context is super important. Whenever you're going to talk about statistics, it's always got to be in context, right? I think that it is disproportionately white, I think is the issue. Like if I look at the students that we have coming through, Australia has a quite a large Asian population because we're very close to Asia, which makes sense. We're in technically Australasia, so that's part of it. So, yeah, like we have a good representation of of students who come from maybe Europe or come from somewhere in probably Southeast Asia, more like Thailand or Japan or Indonesia, India. but we have a very low percentage of pretty much anyone else. Like there's not really anyone else. There's, it's also that thing of, I think when you're looking at those sort of statistics, yes, it should be proportional, but it's also the, the fact that like our, our uni is a, a private uni and to do audio is typically an expensive career because you have to buy your own gear, right? Like you need gear, you need equipment, you need software, you need a computer that's good enough to be able to run that software. And I think that's also a portion of that, like where the those numbers vary is when you look at people who have had, for whatever reason, some level of inequality typically is going to impact their finances in some way. And therefore, it's going to make it a more difficult career path to choose because it is, it's more risky. It's something that you're investing in. And do you have a fail safe, right? Like, does your family have enough wealth that, you know, if you screw it up completely, they're going to be able to take care of you? Like, to pursue a creative field, you kind of, it is a privilege in and of itself to be able to be like, I get to do art. Yay. Uh, you know, like that's a, a huge privilege. And I think, yes, the the numbers, the numbers, if you look at them on paper, they don't really align, but it's the same with any inequality stuff, right? Like there's a whole heap of reasons for that. But I mean, proportionally with the gender of our students as well, that's, not proportional where it should be on paper right and I think that's something where a lot of it is just purely cultural rather than 
building up, like breaking down systems and the whole you know, processes. It's like, hey, no, but why aren't women who are typically, you know, should be able to choose this field? Like it is accessible to them. Why are they not? And I think that's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but I think it is lack of representation or lack of opportunities or, you know, the idea that it's physical if you're doing live sound. So therefore you can't do it because be stronger. <laughs> Women can only be so strong, you know? Yeah. Okay. So for more specific numbers, for the sake of being well-rounded in conversations, I Googled, <laughs> I Googled while you were talking. In terms of the U.S., they gave me a nice little chart. <laughs> As of 2018, we're going to go with America is made up of 73.5% white people. Non-Hispanic whites makes up about 51.6%. And then Black people are about... 15.8% and then it goes down from there so then Asians are 6.4 Native people and Alaskans are in something group here so uh, they're 0.8% of the population and then Hawaiian and other Pacific Islanders are 0.3% so you look at it being like 74 16, 7 and then less than 1 for the other two and so that's sort of our breakdown for the U.S. And then according to the internet as well, <laughs> for Brisbane specifically, because I couldn't find one that gave me a nice chart for all of Australia. So specifically for Brisbane, about there's 40% English people, 35% Native Australian people, 13% Irish, 11% Scottish. 6.4% German, 4.7% is Chinese, 2.8% Italian, and then Indian, as in from India, or no, this is Indo-Australians, so Indian-Australians um, is 2.6%, and then it breaks down into smaller groups from there. So all of that, pretty much all of that until you got to Indo-Australians? is white. <laughs> uh, no, the Chinese. There was the Chinese people before that. Okay, cool. But there so was like one group of Chinese. Yeah. So there's like a, a larger a larger Asian population. But yeah, otherwise it's like yeah, we just categorize into different white categories. <laughs> I'm technically a native Australian because I've had many generations of family that are all white Australian so I'm not I don't have an English parent or grandparent or even great-grandparent like we've been here for ages so that data doesn't take into consideration like our indigenous population as well actually it does it breaks it down further actually if you continue the list actually it breaks them down into the Indians and then indigenous Indians and then the New Zealanders the more Maori, Maori people? Maori. Maori, okay. You got the Samoans, and then there's another group of people who I do not know how to pronounce that, so I'm not going to butcher people's names. <laughs> so then there's that breakdown as well, which I think is interesting. 
Yeah, but that's, I don't know. I just want it to be fair in terms of context. That's so fair. Typically, the breakdown, like, not to, to have this as a, a full, you know, racial conversation, but I think, like, it's... I mean, it can be. I mean, who cares? <laughs> it is relevant. It's relevant when you're looking at why people are choosing a particular field or not, right? Like, I think it's it's important to to try and get as much information and data as you can, try and understand what that population is, what the context is, but also what are the reasons why people aren't choosing this field. Because I see it happen in higher education a lot. Like I see our marketing department or our head academics being like, we just need to get more women in. And I'm like, yeah, cool. <laughs> you you need to help that process. Like you can't just be like, come do it. It'll be great. Like you need you need to start from the ground up. What 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 is the reason why people are not choosing that path? And that can be for any group that is not choosing that path. Why why not? And if you want to advocate that more people should be involved, look at the source of the the reason try and find the the root fault i think what you're talking about is very similar to sort of for a while there we had this program here in the states that was like where if you were a minority who didn't typically go to college they would try to like incentivize you to go to college they're like all right well you know you'll get accepted right because they were like well people who are minorities they came from schools that weren't as like you know well-funded so their education is less and so then it kind of came this this kind of conversation that like minorities were stupider than uh, white people which was really weird and so then they were like okay well to combat that since they aren't as smart we should give them preferential treatment in terms of getting into university because that solves the problem and so it was just like well that's a little tone deaf also it's not so much that they're stupider so much as maybe they just didn't learn it or maybe nobody taught them or maybe we decided to do this whole no child left behind tomfoolery and we just let people keep skipping grades without actually learning anything you know i mean there's a number of reasons why people weren't able to go to college for whatever reason and so that's what that reminded me of when you were talking and i was like yeah and i think that directly applies to the world of audio as well because it is expensive i mean first off going to higher education in general is expensive let alone something that you have to buy all of your own equipment for as well to continue in that education to continue so yeah so yeah that's that's what you made me think of yeah well i think for me as well right like working in higher education for as long as i have it really reframes my understanding of the industry because I'm seeing you know who we're sending out into the industry who we're training the resources that we're providing to do that and it's it is definitely a a point of you know my own internal kind of conflict continually of like well what can I do as a lecturer not much (laughs) really like in the scheme of things I can't like I can do little bits and pieces like I can try and offer some free education stuff like when I have time I'll try and like produce some tutorially YouTube stuff where I walk through my mixing process and do stuff but I try and offer opportunities where I can I try and help people but it is a bit demoralizing to then 
come back to work constantly and walk into my fresh group of students and be like, cool, whole room of white dudes again. Great. Hello. <laughs> and, you know, just also then all of the other issues that come along with being a, a female lecturer. That's a whole other whole other thing. You made me think of something. I don't know if, if Australia's experiencing the same thing, but there's been this whole talk here in the States. How true it is, is always up for question. But there's been this idea that there's like sort of this like labor shortage of sound engineers. And I mean, pre-pandemic. I mean, yes, there's the argument that there's less people doing sound in the pandemic for various reasons. Like, one, because we're in a pandemic, <laughs> you know, like start off with that one. But even before that wave transition, people had started talking about how there are less young people who are going into the world of audio. And I don't know, do do you feel like, or have you seen that being a thing? Because I know like a friend of mine that I had on the show, but he talks about how before he would always have like younger people who would come up to him at shows and be like, hey, you know, I want to learn how to do audio. Can I work with you? Can I study with you? Whatever, whatever. And sort of building connections just by being out in the world, right? And I was like, yes, I could see how, you know, you one might view it that way. But also I think there's like another side that we also talked about, which is, you know, the internet and the access to like YouTube videos. So people don't feel like they need to go to school for those sorts of things anymore. But then you look at the overarching industry and people in general as professionals pre-pandemic have been saying, yes, people might be learning audio on the internet, but there's still less people overall learning audio. I think in Australia, I mean, at least from what I've seen for student numbers compared to when I studied and now there's more people studying. That's like the class sizes that I teach are double the size of the classes that I was in. So I I don't know numbers. It's not a thing that I've, I'm aware of, but it's definitely not something that like on the ground I see an issue with in Australia. I think there is, if anything, a, a surplus of engineers, but I think it's probably noticeable more in specific fields. I think less people are interested in doing live sound and more people are interested in doing music production or things that have some sort of online release. And I think that's what most of the students that I see coming through are gearing themselves towards, whether they want to be an engineer who is purely an engineer working for other people, doing other, you know, producing other people's projects, or whether they are a an artist in their own right and they're wanting to be able to engineer their own work. I think that the difference is that they want to produce something that sounds really good, that is releasable, and that is a product. And then as a byproduct of that, if it gets popular, they will then go to shows and perform it. It's not as much the other way around anymore. And I think that's part of a technological change is we don't now have people just doing gigs because they can do gigs and then, oh, our gigs are popular. Maybe we should make an album. It's like, it's more the reverse. And I also think the the crossover of technology into the live space is changing the way that live engineers it, it's a genre specific 
right? But I think in a lot of genres, stuff that 10 years ago I would have produced purely analog and live, where I would have played guitar through an amp, I would have recorded drums in a room. I'm doing a lot of that in the box now. I'm doing, I'm producing in Ableton and trying to emulate those sorts of tones and doing a pretty decent job of making it sound like it's live in a real room, but it's something that I can make at home. So then when I go to perform it, yeah, I could have someone come and play drums or I can plug my laptop in and then I can perform it. Right. And I feel like I have a lot of, when I was doing a lot of live sound gigs, there was a lot of people who were touring and they would tour with just them as the lead singer and maybe like a keys player. But that keys player is also programming their drums, playing all of their bass lines, doing everything else in the background. And a lot of them would be using things like little vocal processes that they'd attach to their their mic stand and be setting their own compression, their own EQ, their own pitch manipulation. And they'd go, I've got the processing. I just need you to push it through the speakers. And I go, okay, great. I'll grab a beer then. Yes. Like I don't I don't have that much to do other than hit mute every now and again. And I think it's it's not so much that there's at least from what I see, there's not a lack of engineers. I think it's just the role is different in twenty twenty two to what it was even five years ago. It's a different job. Yeah, that's interesting. I like asking this question because I think sometimes like, you know, it's I think it's really easy one to get on Google and just like Google things and come up with information. But I think it's another thing to like have people who are experiencing these things in different capacity and how they're viewing those things that are happening. Because I think that that's important as well. Um, and I think it can affect a lot of different things that sometimes somebody might be like, oh, well, Google says it's an oversaturated field. And then people are like, yeah, but it's not really though. I'm not really sure why Google keeps telling people that, <laughs> totally. you know, or whatever. <laughs> I'm not talking about Google like it's a person. Yeah, but, yeah, well, I mean, we all do, right? Like we've got yell at my Google home constantly. Yeah, I think it's like from what I see, both by seeing the students that come through and, and I'm teaching, also then doing jobs, working within this this area. It seems like any jobs that come up, whether they're live jobs, they're people working in post, they're people you know, working for different studios or doing other things. There's Brisbane specifically is just like a big country town, really. Yes, it is a city. Yes, we have venues, but we don't have a venue on every corner, right? Like we have a specific central entertainment district. And other than that, like we have some bars, spread out so when you then look at the amount of people that are here and versus our population versus everything else there's plenty of people studying audio and not that many venues to actually go and do sound in if that's the thing that you you want to do especially right now so I think yeah I, I definitely haven't seen anyone who's in the field of audio in Brisbane and is working to try and get a job there's more people than there are jobs i know that you're specifically in brisbane but do you feel like that's the case for all of australia or is it even like a similar case for the rest of australia or are you just unsure i think it would be pretty similar for the for the majority of australia honestly the the only thing that i'm 
thinking about from experience that could have some impact is pandemic related because we've had very hard borders between our different states here. So the ability for people to travel between states and do tours or, you know, do events or go and do the gigs that they would normally do if they were on tour has been limited in the last couple of years. And I know that, for example, similar to like the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, we have the Perth and the Adelaide Fringe Festivals here. And my partner normally goes over and works at that. Perth is like the absolute opposite side of Australia to Brisbane. So it's like a a good many hours flight to get there. But I know that there's a whole heap of people that normally would fly in to work those events who can't. And I know that they Perth was definitely struggling because the Western Australia had a hard border. So they were like, uh, yep, we normally have people who come over to do this gig because it's a big show. And they're definitely having a little bit of difficulty getting people who are experienced to come and do stuff. So, Wait, I'm sorry. So amongst the states in Australia, you guys have hard borders amongst your own states? Yeah. Okay. So it's okay. it's all no. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I had to process that because we don't have that here. So I was like, that'd be like I couldn't go from like Texas to New York because that's a, that would be a hard border because Texas is its own state and then New York is its own state and you can't just hop over to New York because you feel like it. Like okay, yeah. For, okay. Forever you have been able to. Like we've always right. we we yeah, got. Yeah. Um, it's just with the pandemic, each of our different states depending on their population density and depending on the the risk of, you know, if, if Brisbane had a big outbreak and we had a heap of cases coming through every day, Western Australia and the other states around us might be like, no, nah, if you, if you're in Queensland, no, you can't come here at the moment. So like at the moment, the new Omicron variant has pretty much decimated Australia. Like we've all had it. And because of that and they couldn't really keep it out the borders have kind of relaxed now where they're like it's already everywhere so we can't really do anything about it but because we were holding it down and like Brisbane it was a huge deal when Brisbane had like or Queensland the whole state which I think is probably the size of Texas we had like five cases and then they'd be like oh my god no one can come in we're in lockdown no moving so when we, you know, when we were keeping it together and we didn't have many cases, the lockdowns made sense because then it didn't travel. You kept it contained and then we were good for another few months. But now that's everywhere, it's a bit different. Yeah. So, okay. I knew that Australia was pretty hardcore, kind of like New Zealand has been pretty hardcore, like nobody in, nobody out sort of situations, which, so I knew that, but I didn't realize that that was like a thing that was done amongst the states as well to kind of cut down on that because I know like here each state dealt with it differently but there was no oh you can't come here because where you're coming from has too many cases or anything like that like there was no hard borders it was like well you're in the states so go take a road trip to you know Missouri if you want I don't know like yeah no it was by plane by car anything like our border you couldn't fly in and if you tried to cross the border but you didn't have a relevant permit you'd get turned back the other way by car so yeah pretty severe but look it it meant that no one that I knew had had COVID until very recently so 
I feel like the fact that we're pretty much all vaccinated now and all have our shit sorted and then it kicked off. I was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively happy that we stayed in isolation. Like I haven't been able to go anywhere or do anything. It's a bit boring, but you know, I feel better about going out in the community. For sure. Yeah. No, I don't have a, an opinion one way or the other. It was more just the surprise that that was one possible, but two, that that was even done. I didn't know that that was a thing. I just found that interesting. I find the way that governments handle different things to be interesting. Oh, for sure. In general. So I guess the last question, sort of what advice or thought that you have that you would like to leave the world with? Sure. <laughs> great big philosophy i know it's very open it's very open statement but you know sometimes people have advice that people just have like a thought or a thing that they've encountered that they're like hey you should probably know this or whatever and so it's just totally like to leave as open as possible i mean i guess the the one that springs to mind and is relevant for me at the moment is not being precious about anything and making as much especially creative media, whatever it is that you're making, whether it's audio or audiovisual or it's any combination of different art formats, just make stuff. Make stuff every day. Do it. If you don't feel like doing audio today, do you have another, you know, art or craft-based activity that you enjoy? Do that. Do some, like, make a thing. Because I feel like getting through this process of feeling fragile about stuff and not wanting to release it is for me has been the biggest struggle like I've got lists of tracks that I've made that I think are actually really solid but they've been sitting in my library right there for like four years where I go yeah I want to make a film clip but I want to do a good film clip so I'm gonna wait and I'm gonna do this and blah whereas in the last little while I've just like recently got back into painting and creating visual media I'm super obsessed with hyperpop and wild little experimental electronic tracks. I also like making my weird, dirty, punky stuff. But I feel like just making stuff and putting it out, whatever format that is, just put it, upload it to Instagram, make something. I think making things, you learn so much through that process. It's not just about like, yeah, get more confident, try and have people view your work. It's like, no, if you're able to make something and let it go, you're going to make a better thing tomorrow and the next day. And if you look back on six months, you go, oh man, I've made some cool stuff. Or like, look at the progression that I've made in that time, which we forget, right? We're always comparing ourselves to other people. We're always like, man, they made such a good track. Like, I can't do one like that. But if you make a cool beat today, great. Do another one tomorrow in a different genre. Make something different. You'll learn, oh, that's how that plugin works. I've been using that wrong. Or, you know, you'll learn a little cool thing and then you'll put that into the next track and then you do something else. And I feel like just making stuff is the most useful thing that you can do. Whatever grabs your attention, just make it and keep doing it, which everyone says, but it's very much what I'm trying to embody and live at the moment got it awesome well thank you so much for doing this with me even with all the crazy shenanigans at the beginning (laughs) thanks for bearing with the tech issues oh it's all good 
All right, chickadees, that's the end of this episode. I hope you got something out of it. Hope you enjoyed. In the meantime, head on over to BeatsInABottle.com so you can sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on all things Let's Talk Audio and, well, me. Also, for those of you who do not know, we do have a Discord server. So message me so I can send you the link so we can continue the conversation over there. In the meantime, let's keep talking about audio.